Namaste to all of you. Good evening. Tonight we continue in our satsang with the final commentary upon some of the shlokas from the sixth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. I think tonight will be the final reading from this fundamental text, although Bhagavad Gita continues further, the subject is slightly changing and there will be some repetition and that's why I think for the time being it is enough. Maybe in another season I'll continue with more chapters from the Bhagavad Gita. For now we are in the chapter 6 of this fundamental text and we are towards the end of it. Last time, the last strophe we did was the shloka number 36, where Krishna, answering to the question of Arjuna of how to control the mind, how to obtain the real success, said that I think that yoga is hard to be attained by one of uncontrolled self, but the self-control and striving one attains to it by the proper means. And then... Arjuna, in this chapter, is going to ask one final question to which Krishna will give his answers and that will conclude this long, beautiful chapter. Let us first see what the question of Arjuna is. This is the shloka number 37. The, a shloka is a verset, a two-liner, could be called a strophe as well. He who is unable to control, Arjuna said, he who is unable to control himself, though he has the faith and whose mind wanders away from yoga, what end does he meet, having failed to attain perfection in yoga, O Krishna? This is really a very significant question because a cruel truth is that even if you look to an audience like this, 100 years from now when we will make the body count, the head count, then we'll probably find that more than not, more people have not reached the full level of enlightenment than those that did, which means some of you are, have been, or will be in yoga for a month, for six months, for a year, for ten years, and some of you will continue doing spiritual practice successfully all the way till the last day of your lives. The last day of your lives will find you as spiritual yogis. And Arjuna is asking a very legitimate question which is gnawing at everyone's heart because people say if I am doing this yoga crazy stuff it's like playing all my life on one throw of the dice. What if somehow I don't have the power of Milarepa or of Ramakrishna and somehow I don't make it. I make it 90%. I make it only 50% of the, 
towards enlightenment, but somehow I don't reach the top of the mountain. I'm climbing the mountain of yoga, but I don't have enough stamina to make it to the top. What will happen then? Because, of course, there are many people who say, you know what, since I cannot be sure that I'm going to reach perfection in yoga, then why don't I just live a bourgeois life? Like, let's eat and drink and be merry and not really bother. It's like I would do yoga if somebody could guarantee to me that I'm going to make it. But if I'm not sure, then perhaps I wouldn't even start it because it, there is a risk there. And the risk is that I'm going to play everything on one card, everything on one chance. So the question is legitimate. He who is unable to control himself, though he has the faith. So he or she, doesn't matter, has the faith. Which means there are people who don't even have the faith. They say nirvana doesn't exist. Enlightenment, it's a utopia. God-realization is just selling illusions. It doesn't exist. For such people, you don't need to ask yourselves why such people don't do spirituality. Such people don't even believe that there is spirituality. And even if they somehow in a very twisted way believe that there is spirituality, they believe it's not possible for the human being to do anything about that because everything is predetermined in advance or some other puerile, usually, excuses which people give themselves for even if they know that they don't act, they, they don't do anything about it. But before that, there is the act of having faith which means there are people in this world who have the faith, and by the faith I don't mean it in a religious way, because in yoga, as you know, we are practical people, and in a certain way we abhor this thing that, you know, people say or people demand to have a faith and that faith is dogmatic and people think that if they have a faith that is going to save them and things like that. Yoga is a practical thing and we admit that there are people in this world that have faith and that is usually a great gift and some people have a faith and they simply have hope for them, there is a perspective. And then there are people who don't even have that. The difference between those, it is a difference of spiritual karma. This is not physical karma. This is not energetical karma. This is not even astral karma. This is not even mental karma, although it could be partly part of the mental body of the Vijnana Mayakosha. This is an opening towards the divine. In my life, I met people who believed in telepathy, believed in clairvoyance, believed in the parallel planes of the universe, like that there are several planes of energy. They believed in the reincarnation of the soul. 
but they did not believe in God. They believed in some of the most esoteric, occult things, with one exception. There was nobody supervising this whole thing. The whole thing was without a creator, without a supervisor. For these people, like such people would be able to study reincarnation, occult, but not the divine thing. You can see it very well in an environment like that one from the Lord of the Rings. In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, there is clairvoyance, remote viewing, hypnosis, magic, all sorts of disincarnated and incarnated beings. All there are fairies and there are whatever. The elves are there. But in all that novel, nobody really says which is the side of God and which is the side against God or if there is a God at all and who serves God or if any of those sides in the Lord of the Ring from time to time receives grace and help from a transcendent intelligence or from a transcendent spirit. This does not exist there. That is why the Lord of the Rings, it's like a pyramid without the top. It's like a decapitated pyramid because precisely the tip of the pyramid, which is the one, is missing. It's all about humans and other races. In a certain way, it's a humanistic Luciferian environment which says it's us and them and the elves and the gnomes and this and it's between us. But it's not. There is a factor in the equation which needs to be taken into account and that is the very creative force of this universe. That's why some people don't even have what Krishna, what Arjuna here simplifies, simply saying the faith. Some people have the faith. They know that there exists something which is absolute, eternal, infinite, immutable, perfect. They know that that perfection can be reached by the human being, such as calling it nirvana, enlightenment, spiritual realization, or whatever you want to call it. These people have the faith, but they do not have, they are unable to control themselves. You will see, it is a sad reality that there are people who even 20 years from now, even 30 years from now, if you ask them, they will say, yes, I actually respect Jesus, I respect Buddha, I respect Krishna, and I know that they are right, which means I have the faith, I'm convinced that there is a spiritual path and a spiritual perspective and the spiritual evolution of man and that even I could get there, but is unable to control himself. Such a person says, yeah, I do, but I was very busy. Yeah, I do, but I had lots of problems. Yeah, I do, but I was unable to do this or that. That is why it is a well-known thing that people, all of you are in a yoga school for shorter or for longer time, but not all of you are in the same stage of your evolution. 
and sadly it is sadly from a certain standpoint because otherwise nothing is sad in this universe everything is just the way it's supposed to be but sadly from the standpoint of the ego not everybody who starts yoga is going to also take into completion take it into completion in that one lifetime some of you are at the bottom of the mountain climbing the first stages of it some of you are close to the top of the mountain and this life could be your final stage of ascension that is why it is known that even great gurus that had hundreds and thousands of pupils then 50 reached enlightenment what about the other 950 that didn't make it all the way up they also must have gotten something so the first level is if you have the faith the faith and again i'm not talking about the religious faith i'm talking about the faith in the meaning that for you spirituality is an option it is there you know that milarepa did something and reached enlightenment you know that rumi did something and reached enlightenment and you know that some men and some women do something and they go towards enlightenment the first step is the faith if you do not have the faith then you do not see a light in the end of the tunnel then your life is hopeless and like jean paul sartre you are going to say life is so hopeless and so meaningless that you could as well commit suicide that's why people sometimes have that attitude because they don't see in the, the end in the light of the tunnel if people would hope in the salvation of their souls sooner or later people wouldn't do shitty things because people would be afraid to forfeit the salvation of their souls but the people who do terrible things are usually 90% people who first of all don't even have a faith that it's possible to do something with yourself that it's possible to save yourself or do something with your spirituality and to such people there is no loss and no gain they simply say yeah well to start with there was nothing this is spiritual karma and it's very difficult to understand because and verify me on this in your life you are going to see that there are people who are like hypnotized there are people who are like blindfolded somewhere and as much as you try it's very difficult to open them up sometimes we find stories about buddha about milarepa about ramakrishna about saint teresa of avila and others who encountered exactly such people and their struggle to wake up those people was disproportionately big they had 49 disciples or followers who already believed like it was for them it's like that's what my heart tells me my intuition always tells me that you are right already tells me that you are right so now just show me what to do and then there is one person who is on the edge on the borderline and that person you know is kind of teased 
and always steps one step forward, one step backward. That person challenges. That person sometimes creates lots of trouble. That person is the troublemaker because that person has a different issue. That person is going from the category of non-believers to the believers. And for that person, the problem is that that person has to open their inner eyes. That person has to see something in the soul. This truth is valid very, very much about Jesus himself. In the life of Jesus, when Jesus is introduced, even John the Baptist, who gave him the baptism, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes upon himself the sins of the world. So the idea is that Jesus took an important amount of karma from everyone, from the whole world, from the planetary mind. And many people say, come on, rationally, honestly. Now, after Jesus passed away, weren't there still wars? Weren't there still people dying of cancer? Wasn't there still domestic violence? Weren't there a lot of sources of, weren't there people who screwed up their relationships and they got so depressed that they committed suicide afterwards? Like, what karma did Jesus take? Because besides the fact that a few thousand people became fanatic Christians, the rest of the world still dabbled in its normal agonies. So how can we see the trace of the passing of Jesus? The karma which Jesus took was karma of the fifth level. Jesus never bothered to take people's physical karma away, except in some particular cases where he did spectacular healing, and that was more with the title of demonstrating that, lo, it's possible. But to take someone's physical karma away is a childish thing if that person is blind spiritually. Because that person has a physical karma because probably they did acts of violence or other things before. And they did that because they were cynical, skeptical, non-believers, hopeless. They had no hope in their heart and they saw no light in the end of the tunnel. And then they did all abominable things because they had nothing to lose. And then if you take that karma away but you didn't solve the problem of the faith that person is going to do it again. Because still, they have no hope, and a person without any hope doesn't put any value on their soul because they don't see any hope anyway. And that is why Jesus was, of course, wise. He, uh, he did not address the low-level karma. He addressed the high-level karma, which is much more difficult to see. But spiritual people, seers, not only from Christianity, they saw that after Jesus passed through this world, many people could believe. Many, many people. You can't imagine how people in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire containing also the Greek culture, were already decadent full of skepticism, full of other entertainment, bread and circus and all that, and people started giving their lives in the Colosseum for believing in some weird Jewish guy 
who had lived 50 or 100 years ago in a unknown land called Palestine, somewhere far, far away from the Roman Empire. And it was enough for you to say, I don't know this Jesus, I don't know what you're talking about, and I'm not interested in him. And then they will let you home, go to your kids, and to your eating and drinking. And people said, no, I know who this Jesus is, and for me he is God. Then you go to the lions. Then you go to your crucifixion. It would have been so simple for people to tell a white lie to just save their lives, and they didn't do it because they believed and because their own integrity was hanging on that. Am I going to betray God now, or am I going to simply uphold my belief? Thus, this is what Jesus gave in a Roman Empire, Greek civilization, barbarian nations which are very uncivilized, people started dying for an ideal. Thousands and tens of thousands could see that ideal in front of their eyes. Why wasn't it possible for them to believe in something before Jesus was born? Because their karma, their spiritual karma, not their physical karma, not their emotional karma, not their financial karma, not their spiritual karma was black, was dark, and they were like blindfolded spiritually. And suddenly after Jesus passed, many people spontaneously could see. Suddenly, this is what Arjuna implies here. He says, he who is unable to control himself, though he has the faith, Sad is the destiny of the one who doesn't have the faith. That one has to be redeemed one way or another. And I'm telling you, look at the stories of gurus, <coughs> organizations, spiritual people, and you'll see that some gurus and some spiritual guides had more trouble and had to pay more karma for saving one of those than with the other 30 disciples, which were already convinced, which were already seeing a light in the end of the tunnel, and then they were asking just for guidance. Redeeming, crossing from one category to another, is still a big thing. That is why the most radical thing is the spiritual karma. When you already have the spiritual karma at looking at the light in the end of the tunnel, you are half saved already because unlike the one who doesn't see the light in the end of the tunnel, you already have the intuition that there is a hope for you, that it goes, all this caboodle goes somewhere, that you are expecting something. It might not come in this lifetime, but it's going to come. You already have a hope. This hope is very important. I told you in a previous satsang that in the Christian tradition, the greatest sin, worse than the seven deadly sins, and the worst of the sins against the Holy Ghost, is hopelessness, despair. If you are hopeless, it's worse than if you kill somebody, because it means you lost Somehow you got blindfolded again, and somebody who is blindfolded can potentially become a beast. 
maybe you are not because you have a good education and good samskaras and you are behaving. But you are behaving just because that's your artificial nature acquired in this life or in the last five lifetimes. You are not behaving because you hope in your salvation and because you are looking forward to something much bigger, much better. Thus, this crossing is a very, very, very big thing and it is, I, I forgot who said it, one of the great spiritualists of our planet and I think it was one of the Western ones. I don't know why I don't remember, probably some of you will remember this one. There's a famous quote which says, I wouldn't look for you, O God, if I wouldn't have found you already. The one who looks for God, looks for God because he or she knows that it's possible to find God. You wouldn't look for God if you would simply say that's absurd and it's never going to work. You wouldn't bother. That's why he or she who looks for God is a person who partly found God already because there is an intuition of the fact I can make it. I can get somewhere. But the great sadness, the great tragedy is for the one who doesn't even have this. The one who doesn't have this is doomed to great sorrow, is doomed to great sadness because somehow they are blind spiritually. You see it sometimes in the case of people suffering from severe mental disorders. This is a disease of the soul. In homeopathy, for example, they say that every time when you heal a disease, it comes from the deeper bodies towards the higher bodies. For example, you take a homeopathic remedy and then you get rashes all over your skin. And your homeopathic doctor is very happy because it says, think, if this disease, instead of coming out on the skin, it would go back into your soul into a deeper body instead of a higher or a superficial body, then you would get a disease of the soul. What would you prefer? To have psoriasis for the next 30 years of your life or not to have the faith to be tormented spiritually because for you there is nothing. Believe me, the soul hurts way, 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 way more and worse than the skin. The skin is nothing. Any disease you can bear it for a lifetime rather than having a disease of the soul. That is why homeopathy and other alternative doctors are very worried by the tendency of modern medicine to suppress external diseases, thus doing them internal. For example, you have a syphilis, you, you say, oh, it's simple. Today, syphilis is easy. You take penicillin. And then, five years later, you are half insane. You have gone into insanity. Not because of the syphilis directly, but because you didn't heal it, you just suppressed it with an antibiotic, and instead of coming out, it bounces back and it goes in the deeper bodies. That's why the result of so much vaccination and antibiotica is that so, so many children today, 25% uh, in North America, especially in America, 
are born autistic already. They are damaged goods from the birth already. That's the result of suppression. And that's the result of not letting things coming out because it's uncomfortable. Oh, but I don't like psoriasis on my skin. Yeah, but this shows that your soul is sick and is taking something out. Bear it, because if you put a cream, if you take some cortisone cream or something and the rash disappears, you are going to have stupid ideas one year later. You are going to be 10% insane. You will not be completely healthy mentally. You will take many wrong decisions. You will lose your creativity. You will lose the very health of the mind. So this karma, to have a faith or not, is fundamental. This is the problem. I, I have read cases of people who took a vaccination and afterwards they were un incapable to pray. Religious people who took a vaccine and they said three days later, I discovered with horror that I could not pray anymore. I had no love for God, no interest, no motivation. I was cold in my heart. I tried a couple of times to pray. I was completely dead. I didn't feel like praying anymore. So the question is, should you live a life without flu? Or should you live a life without God? What would you choose? This is the superficial thing. We often don't see because the causal body is so deep, 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 so far, far, far that who cares? We care about the skin. We care about the flu. But there are things which are much more vital, much more relevant to our lives than superficial suffering of the body, which is sometimes just a purification, an aggravation, an elimination. That is why it is terrible when you are confronted with this lack of the faith. Again, not faith in Jesus, not faith in superstitions of the church or of this religion or of that religion. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the faith in the meaning of having a fundamental intuition that spirituality exists and it is possible, it is attainable, that there is a light in the end of the tunnel. Even when you have that, it's not a guarantee that you will make it in this lifetime. Because Arjuna knows and he says, what about those who have the faith and yet they are unable to control themselves? I believe that there is enlightenment, but I am so lazy and so indolent that I never took the thumb out of my ass and really did something. Or I did one year of yoga because in the beginning I had a, a bit of enthusiasm. And then somehow my boredom, my flatness, my dullness, my laziness took over and I kind of relapsed. I just had one year of enthusiasm and at least I laid a couple of bricks to my wall of yoga. In this life, that was my karma. I had enthusiasm for one year of yoga. After that, my enthusiasm died. But even when my enthusiasm died... I knew that I could have done yoga. I knew that other people did it and they went there. And maybe I blamed myself. Yeah, I'm a lazy bum. But I knew that something was there. 
And this is so very important. But when you do what the Christians call sins against the Holy Ghost, against the Holy Spirit, Tibetans also mention grievous sins which a human being can do, then sometimes your karma can become so bad that you don't see the light in the end of the tunnel. That's, that's one of the tragedies of the people that suffer from major mental disease. Those people cannot find themselves, such as the schizophrenics, which have multiple personalities, and they can't make sense anymore of who am I, because there doesn't seem to be a coherent center of their being, which means jivatman, the individual self in the heart, is disturbed, and those people suffer. Crazy people, although they do lots of trouble to others, first of all, they do that exactly like a wounded animal that creates mayhem around itself and kills everything because it is agonizing, suffering and dying. Don't think that the demons from hell are happy because the demons from hell, they themselves live in hell. And there is no joy to be in hell. The demons do all the nasty things which they do because they are gnashing their teeth agonizingly. They themselves are in great pain and out of that pain they want to drag you in that pain. They simply are bent on a total evil, on a total wickedness, on a total destruction because they themselves suffer. Sometimes there are human beings that have internal suffering. They have a problem in their liver. They have some vertebras in their spine or some bones misplaced. And then they manifest symptoms of mental disturbance and chronic evil and wickedness, malice, simply because they have an organic problem. And it's an insidious problem which hurts at an insidious level. And those people are all the time rabid, mean. And it's actually, they have a problem. If, you, if they would get chiropractic, if they would get some other things which correct that, those people would stop biting around and being mean because they hurt inside and that's where the e their evil comes from. That is why, remember that people who are cursed with this karma... This karma is the worst of them all. There is no karma worse than having no God, no perspective, no hope, no salvation, and no light in the end of the tunnel. If you have a light in the end of the tunnel, you can even be lazy and indolent and blame yourself for it or not, but still you have a light in the end of the tunnel. Your first step is done already. That is why I insist on all of you to first of all sort out your soul. The other things come later. But first of all this karma of the soul. Which are deeds which can create this karma? Here is an excerpt from the Tibetan mysticism, from the Tibetan esoteric sciences, metaphysics. You can get such a horrendous karma if, if you kill your mother, 
if you shed the blood of a Buddha, like Buddhas are very important for the history of this planet, and the collective soul makes a great effort to produce a Buddha now and then, because those Buddhas influence positively millions and billions of people. It is a, a horrendous act for a Tom, Dick and Harry to interfere with that. That is why Jesus, as he was crucified, he found immediately the strength to pray. And he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. If those people would have realized what they are about to do, they would have preferred to die a thousand times over than to crucify someone like Jesus. But because they didn't realize, then Jesus had to pray for them because the karma for those people would have been a spiritual karma, not a physical karma. That is negligible. Those people were Roman soldiers. They had killed so many in their lives before that. One more or one less, what a big difference would it make? But in the case of Jesus, it was not the physical thing. They were shedding the life of a Buddha. Another horrendous deed which can take you to that dark zone. To make two spiritual schools fight against each other. Like spiritual schools are rare and they are a, de a very delicate and spiritual thing. And only the demons enjoy if two religions, two spiritual schools or something fight against each other. And generally spiritual people know better than that and they prefer to stay away. They prefer, you know, you do your thing, I do my thing, see you in Eden, see you in paradise, you know. And if you don't make it to paradise, tough luck. Then it means I was right and you are wrong. But I have no other way to demonstrate. I'm not going to fight with you about it. It's up to you. But to make religions or spiritual people fight, like there is somebody who comes with intrigue and you know what they, those people said about you, then he goes to the other. You know what those people said about you. Oh, you know what those people are going to you. You know what those people are going to you. And like this, you, you simply stir them up until actually you make perhaps them struggle with each other. If you do that, you are born schizophrenic in your next life. That's the punishment. The punishment is mental disease where you don't see the light in the end of the tunnel. You don't have a soul. You actually do have a soul, but it's hidden. It's like paralyzed, stranded, and you don't find it. And all your life you seem to live in a futility, in a uselessness. Such people, that's why we don't even encourage such people to come to yoga courses. Such people meditate and they don't get anything. Such people, they do yoga and they suffer even more because their problem is not that they do or they don't do yoga. Their problem is that they have a terrible spiritual negative karma and until that one is not sorted out, all the other things are useless. That is why understand clearly the gravity of spiritual karma. Spiritual karma is the worst of all of them and you do not want to go there. There are things which nobody should do 
and yet this world is full of blasphemy, full of people who did that, full of people who martyrized great saints and Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And thus, unfortunately, there are many demonic spirits incarnated who, because they are in agony, they go on creating even more mayhem. And of course, one day they will come out of that hell, but that day can be thousands of years from now. And until then, this gnashing of the teeth blindness is going to continue. That is why be happy, those of you, that at least you've got your inner eye open and you contemplate at least the possibility of a spirituality, of a spiritual life that is a great gift already and that's the kind of soul which you don't want to lose. You don't want to lose your soul by doing horrendous things. That's why my advice is in your lives, don't poke your nose in things which are beyond you and you don't understand. Don't create conflict between religions, spiritual schools. Don't try to hurt spiritual people because if that one spiritual people happens to be a Milarepa, they will forgive you generously for what you do, but still your spiritual karma will stand because it's your lack of understanding. And I have seen people with a negative spiritual karma and their lives, until now what I have seen, their life has always been hell. Hopeless, dark. The pain of the soul is by far the worst pain that a human being can endure. So this being said, first you have the faith. But even when you have the faith, you can be very tamasic. You can still be partly subjected to illusion. Like I know that there is a God somewhere there, but then there come all sorts of theologies. For example, Martin Luther, and even more than Martin Luther, Calvin and Zwingli and others, they came up in the so-called Protestant, Puritanist, Calvinistic, and then neo-Protestant religions, they came up with a theological statement which says that it doesn't matter what you do because God already has chosen who is going to be saved. Which is like, then why do yoga? Why do meditation? Why do any effort if God has already chosen who is going to be saved? This is, that's why, for example, in the Protestant church, in the Anglican Church and others, you do not have monasteries. Because monasteries are a Christian institution for people, men and women, who want to get more evolution in less time. People who want to live a more spiritual life than the life in the city and then the bourgeois life. But Luther and Calvin say it's useless if you go to the, to the monastery and you pray eight hours per day, you are not going to get any additional benefit because God has already decided who is going to be saved. And your prayer cannot influence God, which is obviously absurd. And yet hundreds of millions of people today declaring themselves Christians in hundreds of denominations, which come from Luther, Calvin and all what came afterwards, 
they unfortunately have their faith polluted by this incredible stupidity, which doesn't even make sense. And yet, it is there. And that's what I'm trying to say. It's not enough to have faith. Those people believe in a, in a spiritual reality. They believe that there is salvation. They believe that you shouldn't do shitty things because you should keep your options open and you should keep your chances to salvation. But eventually, it doesn't matter if you are vegetarian or not, if you pray or not, if you do this or not, because God is the one who decides anyway. Their God being a totally whimsical God that doesn't take into account anything else. Funnily enough, they don't do sins. They say, no, 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 you shouldn't have sex with the wife of your neighbor, because then surely you'll go to hell. But if God would condemn you definitely for that, then why not accept that God could save you for something which you do? That is not. It's a completely incomprehensible logical thing, which of course Luther and Calvin and others sustained with very sophisticated theological arguments, which unfortunately have no common sense. That's what's happening often in spirituality, that some people lose the common sense, the simple ground, like as above, so below. You know, nature is there, right for you to know, and nature inspires us, shows us how things are going, what is happening. So this being said, what I'm trying to say here is, you can have faith, but then that faith can be polluted by other things, such as you have a faith, but then on that faith you have a stupid theology, which is passive and lazy. On that faith you have a lot of illusion, like you believe in the fairy, tooth fairy, and I don't know what, and you are just hoping for all sorts of phantasmagoric, vadistanistic things, which are actually never going to happen, and you spend your life in ridiculous pursuits and expectations. You are too lazy. You have the illusion that, I don't know, doing this, getting a career, getting fame and name is more important than knowing God. It's more urgent. And then the next step is that you have faith, says Arjuna, but you are unable to control yourself. It's a pretty rough way of saying it. Because it basically says, whoever has faith and doesn't go towards the goal is a person who cannot control themselves, actually. Because if you would be in full control of yourself, once you have a faith and your mind is clear, it would be normal to run towards the light in the end of the tunnel. It would be normal not to procrastinate. Why procrastinate? That's why Jesus, who has no blindness of any kind, says, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and all the rest shall be given to you hundredfold. Like you want relationships, you want children, you want name and fame, you will get it after you find God, not before. Don't put the cart in front of the horses. First, get the first priority. If you die tomorrow, is it better to die rich or to die enlightened? No, like which is the priority? Which is the time-sensitive priority in your life? And Jesus says, if your right arm hinders you, cut off your right arm. Because it is better to reach to the kingdom of heaven without your right hand than not to reach at all. Thus, 
normally if people would have the clarity of Jesus or of Buddha, they would run. Buddha saw a sick man. Buddha saw a dead man. Buddha saw an old man. And he simply said, that's befalling me also. That's befalling everybody else. It's terrible. Life is not that happy as I was told. Look what is happening in life. People are trying to hide it. No, they pretend there is no death. They pretend there is no severe illness. They pretend there is no old age. But those things are there. And what are you going to do when they will hit you inevitably? Then it's too late maybe to do something. That's why Buddha, when he saw those things, he couldn't sleep in the night. And then he took a radical decision. He left his child. He left his wife. He left his parents. He left his duty and his palace. And he went into a jungle, into the jungle like a vagabond, to find the answer to those. That's why Buddha had the faith to start with. But in the moment when he got motivated, he did something. He had control over himself. Other people say, yeah, I do, but you know, I still have something very important to do. You are blinded by Maya, my friends. You are not seeing clearly. You are having very skewed priorities. People of great clarity have known the priorities immediately. Thus, and Arjuna therefore knows that such people exist and he says, he who is unable to control himself though he has the faith. That category, which is perhaps 50% of the spiritual practitioners, perhaps more than 50% of the spiritual practitioners, and whose mind wanders away from yoga. This is the result of it. If you do not have control over yourself, although you have faith, sooner or later, your mind is going to wander away from yoga. How many people didn't I know who were fanatic yogis in their 20s and they were beaten dogs squealing with the tail between their legs in their 40s or 50s. This is what life is. People start yoga. I've known people when they started yoga. And okay, not in the first five days. Because then you say people are really superficial. People who did six months of yoga. One year of yoga. And who really started seeing what is under the cover of it. Those people would have said, I would rather die than quit yoga. I will never, it's like it's obvious, or again, not yoga, take it with a pinch of salt, spiritual practice. I will never give up spiritual practice. I will never give up my love of God. I will never give up my Ishvara Pranidhana. I will never give up my aspiration towards something spiritual. And 20 years later, they were exactly there. How did it happen? What a tragedy this is when you put them comparatively. What a compromise, what a rabat those people had to do to get from this image where they said, I would rather die today than lose this soul which I have right now, this feeling, to reaching there. That is why 
a long life in spirituality is a very challenging thing because you have to keep the faith up in the movie I mentioned already this in a speech in the movie Peter and Paul where Anthony Hopkins plays the apostle Paul apostle Paul of Jesus Paul is announced that he has to come to the judgment of Caligula or Nero and obviously he's going to be given a death sentence and he pours wine to everybody in the room and cheers with them and they say didn't you hear it right you're invited to your judgment and death and he said my friends in my life I did many errors I persecuted people I shouldn't have persecuted then I got converted and I commended my ways then because of my faith I have been beaten imprisoned tortured accused unjustly and many other things but somehow I kept my faith I ran the race and now I can see the finish line and I didn't lose my faith I've got one more day two more days to live most probably I'm not going to lose my faith in these two days therefore I'm reaching to the hour of my death in full faith therefore I'm saved I'm now waiting for my reward I'm going to take my reward for the life which I live basically Paul says think I could have been the Apostle Paul for 10 years. For 10 years I could have been a fiery preacher of Christianity. And one day I could have simply lost my momentum. And thus simply my mind would have wandered away from whatever I was doing. Many people do that. And that is why this is exactly how the spiritual karma manifests. That's why there are people, spiritual practitioners, whose main practice is keep me with you, keep me near you, O oh God. The worst thing is that I might actually start moving away from this. And I, where I am now, I can see it as a tragedy. Where I will be at that time, I'm sure I'll find a lot of excuses for it. But from where I stand now, it's like the last thing which should happen in my life. I don't want that to happen. Therefore, all those of you who will be for a long time in spirituality, either in Sufism or in Christianity or in Buddhist meditation or in yoga, you will see this, that people have faith, they go on with the practice. Then they may lack self-control, then slowly, slowly their mind wanders away from yoga. That's why not everybody who starts yoga finishes yoga. There are many people who get lost along the path. And that's simply the way it is. If you don't want it to be you, then pray, pray fervently that you are not going to be one of those. And thus, and Arjuna therefore says, what end does such one meet having failed to attain perfection in yoga? If he attains samadhi, if he is enlightened, we know. When he dies, he will see the clear light, he will merge with it, he will go into maha samadhi, and that's it. The death is the end of the kabudal for that person, irrespectively if he has been a very spectacular spiritualist or not so spectacular but to one who has made only 75% of the path, 
what will happen. And he continues by saying, fallen from both. Fallen from both. Fallen from the world and from God. Like that one didn't make it to nirvana. But meanwhile that one didn't have a household full of children and a career and eating and drinking and being merry and doing all the things which people do. So that person, as Aurobindo says, that person fell between two chairs. <coughs> so fallen from both. Like you played the game and you lost. And then didn't you lose both? Wouldn't it have been better then to at least have some fun and forget about all this spiritual thing? Instead of playing your life on a throw of dice, shouldn't you just have ignored it? And at least in the end of the life you'd have said, boy, I had a hell of a life. I had an amazing life. You know, I had fun. I did a lot of things. You know, it was great. Yeah, it's true. I didn't do spirituality, but at least I had great fun. I can die in peace, you know, because I have seen the Easter Island and I have done whatever, you know. But now I haven't been visiting the places, the hundred places I wanted to visit before I died. I didn't do this, I didn't do that. I never had enough money to fly first class and now I'm dying. So I didn't do that. I'm not doing this either. Fallen from both, does he not perish like a rent cloud, supportless, O oh, mighty armed Krishna, deluded on the path of Brahman. No, it's like, like a cloud. Sometimes the clouds just dissolve. Then there is no trace of them. When a cloud goes into an atmospheric region of certain parameters, the clouds are simply like dissolving and disappearing. Exactly as sometimes clouds are appearing. So it's the same. And therefore a cloud disappears without leaving any trace. So basically Arjuna says, it's the problem which many people ask and I am asking. He says, you know, it's like people are afraid. I will not leave a trace in this world. People, there are dictums which say one should not have lived his life in this world without having planted a tree and made a child. And Arjuna says such people don't plant a tree. Like they don't build a house or something. They don't farm. They, they don't have children. They will soon die. And they haven't left a trace in the world. They didn't make a difference. They stayed there on their big asses. And pretended they were meditating to reach nirvana. And lo, they didn't reach nirvana. So now they lost both. Isn't such a soul just useless, disappearing, like, like a cloud, like a rent cloud? And they are deluded on the path to Brahman. Like some people make it to Brahman. Brahman means the absolute and it's an epithet for God. Aren't such people being deluded on the path of Brahman? Don't they get lost in the mist and simply lose themselves, lose their souls? It's a very tragic question. It's a very significant question. It is impossible to be a spiritual practitioner and not to ask yourself this very serious question. What are the stakes? What, I am, what kind of game am I playing here? And what risks am I taking? 
This doubt of mine, we move to the shloka number 39. This doubt of mine, O Krishna, do thou completely dispel. Because it is not possible for any but thee to dispel this doubt. Here, simply, this does not require a big commentary. Arjuna emphasizes. You see, he simply says, now this one, please really do answer. Like this is a tragic, this is a painful question. And it's very alarming for one like me. And therefore, this doubt of mine, do thou completely dispel. Because it is not possible for anybody to dispel this doubt. Here, at least Arjuna shows he has the faith. He says, I know you are enlightened. I know you know the truth. You are more than enlightened. Arjuna is, I'm sorry, Krishna is an avatara, is God, incarnate. And Arjuna simply acknowledges it. It's exactly like Jesus who says, Do you think that I can do that for you? And people say, Yes, O Lord. And then he says, Okay, then let it be according to your faith. Like he challenges people. He says, Why, why do you ask this of me? And then this woman, Martha or whoever says, It's a pity that you are not here when Lazarus died. Because if you would have been here, as we know, you are such a great healer. Surely you wouldn't have let him die because he was your friend. So much confidence they had in Jesus that he can... And then she ups the stakes and simply twists his arm behind his back. Because she says, but I know that even now, if you ask something of God, God is going to give you whatever you are asking. What could Jesus do then? Simply say, Marta, Marta, shameless, you know, shame on you. You are kind of pushing the envelope there, aren't you? Jesus cannot show such weakness and he cannot be a coward. Jesus is in the position where he can never back down. For Jesus, there is only one way, forward, forward and forward again. So when she rises the challenge up, he has to stand to that challenge and therefore, Jesus goes and brings Lazarus up after three days of his death when his body started decaying already and technically it was impossible to bring a man from his death after three, four days. So that is why here Arjuna plays the same game. He says, you are God. Clarify this. And Krishna, when somebody who is godly like Krishna is approached like this, there is no way they can back down. If they back down, then he is not godly. This is how you see it. In the case of Buddha, Buddha is not an avatara. He is an enlightened soul, which is very much, but it's not the same with the avatara. And the woman brings her child. And he says, my baby died, you are Buddha, bring my child back to life. And Buddha winds her up. And sends her on some wild errand. And then eventually tells her, see, everybody dies. Don't ask me to contradict the laws of nature. If Jesus would have been asked the same thing, he would have done it. Jesus was never asked to do anything of the kind. And back down saying, not today. I have eaten butter this morning and I don't feel quite good. There was no bad day for Jesus. He was wired up constantly on those things. And thus, here Arjuna uses this trick. 
he goes the, because he says this is a difficult issue. You, Krishna, must explain this as a god. And here comes the final part, which is beautiful. Krishna then says, O Arjuna, neither in this world nor in the next world is there destruction for him. None, verily, who does good, my son, ever comes to grief. The first statement of Krishna is a consolation for everybody who is spiritual. He says, even if you flunked on the spiritual path, neither in this world, which means as your, what have you done in this world, nor in the next world is there destruction for him. So that person, because you from outside said, how does he feel? How does this person who didn't make it feel? And Krishna says, he or she does not feel that they lost anything. They don't feel destruction. Even if you heroically tried and you didn't quite make it, you don't feel you lost the world or lost something because the spiritual practice brings a reward in itself. It brings a certain adjustment of the consciousness which cannot produce that loser type of state of mind. Oh, I did 20 years of prayer and I didn't reach the kingdom of heaven and oh my, oh my, I am so destroyed. No, there will be a sort of comfort, consolation. There is a state of mind which doesn't make that possible. So he says, Arjuna, neither in this world nor in the next world, which is lasting even more and therefore more relevant, is there destruction for him. So he says, stop thinking this silly thought that if you didn't make it, it's black or white. It's either emperor or nothing. If you didn't make it to the emperor level, spiritual emperor that is, then uh, you have lost everything. He says, there is no destruction for such a one. None verily who does good, he means who acts righteously, who acts uprightly, who acts in a dharma, according to the dharma. None verily who acts in this way, who does good, ever comes to grief. It's a very big promise. Krishna says none of those. So actually taking the spiritual path, Krishna gives a guarantee. If you take the spiritual path, even if you don't make it till the end of it in this lifetime, you are not going to come to grief and nothing shall be destroyed. You are going to feel the progress. You are going to go in a good place. Things are going to be good. You are not going to feel regret or loss or destruction. It's very important when such a statement comes from Krishna, who is asked as God, like nobody knows it better than you, tell me. And in the strophe number 41, he starts describing the beautiful evolution after death of such a person. He says, having attained to the worlds of the righteous, this means going into high astral worlds after death. 
You don't reach to paradise. You don't reach to enlightenment. You don't reach to what Jesus called the kingdom of heaven. You reach to the worlds of the righteous, which means all the people of high spirituality, all the people with a good anahata, good vishuddha, good ajna, some sahasrara, they go in elevated, nice worlds which are like paradises, which are bright worlds, happy worlds, fortunate worlds, and it matters. It matters tremendously if you are spending there 30 years or 300 years or 3,000 years. It matters a lot. Having attained to the worlds of the righteous. Why? Because a person that did 10 years of yoga, even if they didn't make it to enlightenment, they are already having a lot of spiritual resonances in their aura. And when those people are dying, they are automatically starting praying, meditating, remembering everything spiritual. And their merit, their spiritual karma, plus their high resonance, then the people will remember in the last minute, shucks, I'm dying. And they focus on the third eye because that's what they read in the Bhagavad Gita. That makes a huge difference. And thus, the people who have done something, they attain higher than average spiritual worlds, subtle worlds, astral and mental worlds, universes, locations, after they die. Having attained to the worlds of the righteous and having dwelt there for everlasting years, not only that you reach to a high world, but you are going to spend very long durations of time having fun in those paradises. Having dwelt there for everlasting years. According to the Tibetan astrologers, the average cycle of reincarnation is the Chinese calendar cycle of 60 years multiplied with the seven planets of classical astrology. 420 years, out of which 80 you spend on Earth and 340 you spend in the astral world. That's average. Anybody who is born faster than 340 years stays less than average in the astral world. And that can be for two reasons. Either you are too attached to the material world, sex, falafels, and whatever else is there, and you have to reincarnate very quickly because you are a lusty person full of desires, therefore you are a bit of an animal. You are not like an angel ready to stay in the subtle world. You are a bit gross and asking for a gross experience. Or sometimes because you are a very spiritual person who doesn't want to waste time and wants to get reincarnated very quickly for a spiritual purpose. But very few people can decide that or influence that. And that is why... The average thing is that less, than, less spiritual people incarnate faster, like in the Kali Yuga it's faster and faster, and more spiritual people after every life, it's like you had a trip to a real unpleasant place. And when you die, you just go like, phew, you know, it's like, okay, 
I hope I'm not going to see that planet for another 3,000 years right now. It's like, let me be free in paradise, feeding myself on cosmic light and just, you know, meditating and experiencing a disincarnate. And alas, my karma is not over, so I know I will have to go down there. But the later, the better. You know, it's like, let's not see it right now. This is very hard to understand by people who are attached to the physical world and they think that the physical world is the only satisfaction that a soul can have. Actually, spiritual people think that out of this life, you are better off than in this life. At least it feels higher and more comfortable. And therefore, having attained to the worlds of the righteous, which means different types, worlds of Anahata, worlds of Vishuddha, worlds of Ajna, different worlds corresponding to different frequencies of vibration, and dwelt there for countless years, like that's your reward for leading a spiritual life, you have the right to a long, long rest, to a long, long repose. He who fell from yoga, he uses a pretty politically incorrect, a pretty harsh language. He or she who fell from yoga, it's like falling from grace, it's falling from yoga. Like it would have been much better if you took it up, if you finished it. Don't waste your time. Don't dabble, don't try to drown yourself in shallow water. If, don't fall from yoga. Do it. If you, if you caught it, do it. That's wishful thinking. Unfortunately, people, as we know, fall from yoga, fall from Christian prayer, fall from Sufi mysticism, fall from Buddhist practices. That's always there. He who fell from yoga after this high sejour and long satisfactory break, pause, he who fell from yoga is reborn in the house of the pure and wealthy. Actually, Ram, uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi prefers to translate that verse by saying he is born in the house of the pure and illustrious. By this meaning, great spirits, great spiritual people. The word is ambiguous. It can use also wealthy, which means good karma through and through. You are not born in Somalia. You are not born in a slum. You are not born in this. You are born in the house of the pure, wealthy, illustrious. That's a good karma. Don't think that people are accidentally born here or there. People are born according to a karma. And basically what Krishna says, after having a long rest of a great quality, not only that, but you are going to continue having a very good start. Some people get a very bad start in life. You are going to get one of the best start because the first word which he uses is pure. And pure means spiritual, religious, not with sins. People that are dharmic, people that are righteous. And on top of that, being illustrious, wealthy, something which automatically gives you an excellent start. Therefore, there is a big deal to it. There is the promise of 
a very good end to the life, a very good and long afterlife, and then because the cycle is not completed and alas, you will have to reincarnate, at least that reincarnation will be in an excellent place. And in the next shloka, he ups it. Like, it can even get better. And this better will show you something. 42, he says, or, or even better, he is born in a family of even the wise yogis. Verily, a birth like this is very difficult to obtain in this world. Even better than the house of a religious, righteous, illustrious, and perhaps wealthy people is to be born in a family of wise yogis. Why? Because your mother and father are going to teach you spiritual things ever since you are three years old. You are going to be like the Tulku Lamas of Tibet. You are going to have many, many spiritual things put onto you early in life. And you are going to have your faith. And you are going to have positive beliefs. And you are going to have many good things. That is why the best birth, according to Krishna, and it belongs to those who didn't finish their yoga in their previous life and who are very good at it, is that you will get one of the most rare possible types of birth, which would be to be born out of spiritual practitioners. Their bodies are going to be clean. They are going to give you a good mind and everything. The astral body, everything is going to be on a good influence. That's why when you study in Tantra 2 or in the Tantra Mama workshops, there is there, the problem is set the other way around, but it means the same thing. It says, spiritual people can call on to advanced souls to come and be born in their family. It's the same thing, only seen from the standpoint of the parents. The parents say, let's have a child and let's call Milarepa or Ramakrishna to be born in our family. And we promise to them that we will give them good care, will not vaccinate them and stuff them up with antibiotica, and we will teach them yoga, and will give them the possibility to practice whatever they want to practice without putting stupid pressure on them, and without nagging them and making their life difficult, their spiritual life difficult. And the spirit which is on the other side says, I wish I can be born in the family of those yogis, because they are going to give me an excellent start and I'm going to see amazing things from the beginning. That, that is why is it difficult to obtain? Because especially at the time of Krishna, many yogis were celibate. And because of this, how would you get born in the family of yogis when the yogis don't have children? Even the yogis that had partners, they were not having children. Sri Aurobindo partnered up with the mother. But there were no children in that relationship. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa partnered up with Sarada Devi, but they didn't make children. Mananda Mai partnered up with Bolanat, but there were no children in their marriage. So even rarely when the yogis would make a relationship, Abhinava Gupta was in his relationship, we don't know that he had any child. Even then, 
the yogis will practice tantric sex or they will have a white marriage. They will sublime the sexual energy and together they will do meditations, spiritual techniques, they will lead a family spiritual life and somehow they will forget, it will go like this through their hands, oh, by the way, we got to be 50 and we didn't make children. Yeah, well, we had a good spiritual life, we had many, many other things to do, we didn't think about that. This makes that to really be born out of yogis, it's a very rare occurrence. And that is why Krishna praises it here. So Krishna says, if you have gone high with your yoga, you'll spend lots of time in paradise and it will be good. <coughs> Afterwards, you will be born in the house of somebody pure, <coughs> religious, righteous, illustrious, wealthy, and perhaps yogis. That's why the Dalai Lama, the present Dalai Lama, expressed his concern and worry <coughs> That because the families in the world today are not as puritanic and as faithful as the simple Tibetan citizens were 50 years ago or 100 years ago, what is happening is that in the world, because he considers the West much lower, much more materialistic, that it, and in India people have gone that way and in Thailand and everywhere, and therefore... Dalai Lama says, I wonder, well, where will the Tulku Lamas be born if they are no longer pure and spiritual parents? Like many of the great Lamas who kept incarnated, they will simply say, where? Where? I would like to be born, but to be born out of such miserable things and to be treated like shit and so on, it's going to make my life a nightmare. I'm going to get a real bad start in life with those parents or with those parents. They are good, but they are materialistic and blind. They are going to give me a polio vaccination one hour after I'm born. They are, every time I get a little infection in my tonsils, they are going to stuff me up with antibiotica. And then when I will be 15, 16 years old, and I will be at the point where I might start some spiritual practice, I will be 30% autistic already because of the way I'm born from those parents and brainwashed by stupid cartoons and brainwashed by watching Lady Gaga and brainwashed by, you know, then, then I better don't get born. I better wait for another 500 years until those, people, uh, until those people nuke themselves out of existence and we get a new humanity where there will be some decent parents and some de decent in the meaning of pure spiritual right not because the parents, there are many parents who love their children, but they are ignorant and they will do, even when people love their children, they will do lots of wrong moves, although precisely because they love them. They say, no, 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 let's give a polio vaccination to the child. What if the child gets polio? And that polio vaccination is turning your kid 10% autistic already. You loved your child, but because you are ignorant, you do stupid things to your own child. That's Kali Yuga. Kali Yuga poisons us all. It does a lot of nasty things to us all. So, or he is born in an actual family of yogis endowed with wisdom, though such a birth as this on earth is more difficult to attain. Krishna, even 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, it was difficult. 
And then it continues, and I know we are over time, but I want to finish because the rest of the things are kind of clear. Those of you who wish to meditate already in attunement, listen to me in a meditation posture. You will have double benefit. We will do our Shivaratri meditation as soon as I finish this. 43. There he comes, there in such a yoga family, if he has the best of births, there he comes in touch with the knowledge acquired in his former body, which is good. I have told sometimes to people among you where I could see that you now have not yet reached the knowledge which you had in your previous life. I, have seen, I can see sometimes people who do not remember how far on the path of spirituality they had reached even in their previous life. And now they are fighting with some pathetic issues and I'm, I feel like slapping them over the head and telling them, wake up. You are better than that. You can do better than that. In your previous life, you were already higher than that. Why are you stumbling over such small things right now? You passed those tests already. You have to address bigger challenges right now. Stop being in kindergarten. You know, go to the big things. In a yoga family, uh, such a high spirit will come in touch with the knowledge acquired in his former body, in his former or her former life. Which means it's much more easy when your parents can remind you of your previous lives and teach you methods and remind things and especially do that as a child. And then you are like, wow. You know, it's like, I remember many things. And thus, he comes in touch with the knowledge acquired in his former body and strives more than before for perfection. Like there are many people, and it is many of you, because that's why you are here in a yoga school which deals with spiritual yoga. Because many of you, when you started spiritual practice, young or old, it doesn't matter. That's a matter of your karma. Some people have a bit of a blockages because it's not so black and white and they have a blockage. But even when they are 40 years old, suddenly their soul can take no more and boom, they burst into some spiritual practice. And then people like that and like many of you, when you start in this life, you don't start from zero. You start from where you reached in the previous life. And if in the previous life you had reached high levels of accomplishment, the first part of your spiritual practice, a month or a year or a few years, will be just you remembering. You are just catching up with what you knew when you died in the end of the previous life. And that's why for many people this first part of the spiritual practice, it's like a walk in the park. You are blindfolded and you are walking and you say there are no bushes, there are no trees, there are no obstacles. It's like you walk in the forest, but you cleared the path in the forest in your previous life. And you are wondering, there's no obstacle for me. Everything goes smoothly. And then one day you reach to the point where you have finished cutting the forest in the previous life. And then it suddenly becomes much more difficult. It's like you do yoga, 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 yoga. You know? Now it becomes like, it's exactly like a cutting knife which cuts nothing, 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 nothing. Now it comes into some stuff 
and now it starts actually cutting. That's why observe this in your lives. There is a part which goes easy and that part can be two weeks or 12 years and there is a part where you feel now I'm really pushing my limits. Now I'm pushing my limitations. Remember what you are doing easy, what's piece of cake is piece of cake because you already did it in a previous life and now you are just rebuilding that, remembering that because your present brain has to be reformatted on that same foundation and every time when you are born unfortunately you have to spend the time to relearn to walk, to relearn to speak, to relearn to tie your shoelaces and to relearn to do meditation and to relearn to do trataka. That's the, the, that's the way physical life is. However, things are going much easier. I have seen people who did meditation spontaneously. I have seen people who fasted spontaneously. I have seen people who are spiritual spontaneously. I have seen people who discovered even the tantric continents of the sexual energy spontaneously without coming to a tantra workshop. Those people are remembering it from a previous life and either they were born in a yoga family or not depending on their karma but still they are in a good place. By that very former practice, he is born on in spite of himself. It's very beautiful. It says, in spite of yourself, you are taken there. I'm sure there are many of you who feel this thing. What the heck am I doing in spirituality? It's like I am, you know, my boyfriend, my girlfriend. There was a coincidence. And many people say, you know what, in the beginning I didn't even want to be in Agama. I came... No, it was weird and I actually had to spend 10 days before my airplane had to go. And, you know, like people in spite of themselves, they find themselves brought there. In spite of themselves. You just stop one day in Dharamsala and that's exactly the day when the Dalai Lama gives the Bodhisattva vows. And you sit there like a dork and you are taking the Bodhisattva vows with Dalai Lama. And you don't even know what hit you. How come that in this life you have taken bodhisattva vows? It's like, why did you drop by just that day in a spiritual place? Or you come to Agama and Swami Vivekananda gives you the mantra of Shiva. How come you just drop down in Wednesday in week four and you got a mantra? That there's no coincidence ever when these things are happening. There is no accident and thus... This rabbit hole is very deep. There, by that former, very former practice, because you put aspiration and you put things into it, you are born on in spite of yourself. You don't know how, but your own subconscious mind forces you to get where you once were. Because you deserve that level. If you don't reach there, it's like you are punished. It's like you have a bad karma which forbids you to get where you were because you have reached a high level and then you did something really stupid. But if you reached a high level and you didn't do something stupid, then in spite of yourself, you can even kick your feet and scream and you will be spiritual. Walt Whitman reached the state of Samadhi. Not doing yoga, not doing anything. 
Walt Whitman became spiritual and he started writing very spiritual things and his family and sometimes he himself thought, I'm a bit crazy. I'm afraid I'm insane. There is something abnormal. Because he didn't meet with Ramakrishna who will tell him, no Walt, you have done yoga in your previous life, boy. And this is what you are remembering. It, it's coming back to you. And this state of mind which you just experienced, it's not insanity. You just had a form of samadhi, boy. And you could take it on from here and go even further. There is more to that. You could, but Walt Whitman had a funny karma. It came, his samadhi came back to him without him doing any spiritual practice. But then he was confused. It's like, gosh, what's that? Am I crazy? Is this the way? And then he was so impressed by that, that all his life he remained a very special poet, a very special writer, because of that. Other people have had this. So Walt Whitman didn't reach Samadhi even in this life, which we know him as Walt Whitman. So it continues. It is to be continued. Is a series, and it will continue in the next season. Walt Whitman, series three. No, because he didn't make it in the first when we don't know how he was called. He didn't make it in the second when he was called Walt Whitman. He's going to be back with a new adventure. <laughs> so by that very former practice, he is born on in spite of himself. Even he who merely wishes to know yoga transcends the Brahmic word or Otherwise said, the Vedic tradition. The Indian spirituality is governed by the Vedas, which is the Brahmic word, the word of Brahma, the word of God, the divine logos. And Krishna says a very important thing. He says, even he who merely wishes to know yoga, such as you come to Agama and you take a Laya Yoga initiation and you think it's crap. By just that thing, you transcend the Vedic religion. You transcend it. A drop of yoga is more than the religion and the daily life things. There are 999 people out there who just have a common householder life. And I don't intend to be contemptuous or diminishing to them because they follow their karma and their aspiration and their destiny. And then there comes one who merely wishes to know yoga. That one is already one step above the crowd. How much confidence Krishna has in yoga. Krishna says, you've done a bit of yoga, you've gone out of the crowd already. You are above the average level. You are special. Like Jesus tells to the apostles, you met me, you are the salt of the earth. You don't know how important, Jesus tells to the apostles, how important you are to God and to the history of this planet. And time proved that it was so. All those apostles made history. They made something very special. So he says, even the aspirant to yoga, even a beginner yogi, passes beyond the Veda. A yogi is above the level of the society. It's a very important thing. People are usually diminishing themselves 
But Krishna puts things into value, into the real perspective. Krishna was asked as God, tell me what's happening. This is what God says. Krishna says, even a bit of yoga, even slightly, and you transcend the Vedic tradition. It's a big word. And he says, but the yogi who strives with assiduity, purified of sins and perfected gradually through many births, reaches the highest goal. He says, it may take many births, it may take that you don't make it in one lifetime, but don't despair, because nothing is lost. You are compounding and compounding and compounding. You are adding on. If you don't finish it this life, next life you will be taken to this level again. And from there you can make another step forward. And one day when you reach to be determined enough, and many of you who have aspiration and who are practicing yoga seriously, that's why you are who you are. And that's why you are what you are. When you reach to that, he says... But the yogi who strives with assiduity, which means with perseverance, with zeal, the one who indeed puts his shoulder into it, the yogi who does that, and indeed some of you have aspiration, have perseverance, the yogi who does that, purified of sins and perfected gradually throughout many births. Maybe you don't get purified and spiritualized in one life. Maybe it takes ten. But still it's going to happen. Once you are on that slope, you get on that slope and you become better and better and better. And the yogi who strives like this, through many being purified of sins, which means of negative karma, and perfected gradually through many births, reaches the highest goal. Read the lives of the Buddha. Buddha describes 10,000 lifetimes. They are recorded in the Jataka stories. And there you are going to see, Buddha says, this is not my first life when I meditated. It's not the first life when I did spirituality. But it's the first in which I found the perseverance to go the full Monty. Like I have done some 10 spiritual lives until now. But there I had faith, but I didn't have enough self-control, as an earlier shloka says. Like, I was interested in spirituality, but I was still dabbling into it. I was still half, half. I didn't give it the whole hand. And now, when I was born as Gautama Buddha, it's like my soul has reached critical mass. I had reached to a point where my subconscious mind said, enough is enough. This is it. Today, this life is it. I'm going to make it. Therefore, he simply says, nothing is lost. Even if you don't finish it, you have put a few important bricks there to the edifice. And then, striving, you find a life when finally you are motivated and you strive with, perseverance with zeal, you are purified of most of the negative samskaras, negative karma, and you are perfected, which means you are having many virtues and many qualities, even without knowing why you are so different from other people. And there, purified through many births, such a yogi reaches the highest 
goal, which means it's not for everyone now in one go. But for some, it's going to happen in this lifetime because their time has come. They are ripe for it. Even when you don't go the full Monty, you are still on the path. It's coming up. The Buddhists of Tibet, the Mahayana Buddhism, calls this Bodhisattva. If you are not a Buddha, then you are a Bodhisattva. A Bodhisattva is exactly that. You will be born in a yogic family. You will take up spiritual practice. Mysteriously, you will be one of the people with great spiritual aspiration. And then you will go even a little bit forward. Now you are 70% a, a Buddha, a Bodhisattva, therefore. Then in the next life, you become 85% of a Buddha. And then in the next life, you hit jackpot and you reach 100%. And then that's it. So, Krishna, as you can see, gives a very encouraging and beautiful image. There are so many phantasmagoric theories in many theologies in this crazy New Age environment. Why do you need those phantasmagoric things when Krishna is crystal clear in a treatise which is as old as the hills? Therefore, these things are clear and metaphysically you need to align with them. In the last but one strophe of this chapter, Krishna says, continues by saying, the yogi is thought to be superior to the ascetics. That means people who go and do asceticism. For example, Buddha, when he looked for the answer to the question of life, in the beginning, he didn't know where should I, what method should I use. And for six years, he lived with some people called samans, not shamans, samans. The samans being a form of hyper-ascetic yogis, sort of early yogis, who were performing mortifications, austerities of mortification. And Buddha lived with them for a few years, until he realized what these people do is not harmonious, has no common sense, it's exaggerated, is extreme, and these people torture themselves and maybe they get the power to drill holes through the metal with their third eye, but they won't make it to nirvana, they won't reach enlightenment. So I'm not interested to just have some CDs and some stuff, that's why the Buddhist tradition generally speaks bad about yoga. Because the yogis that Buddha knew in his youth, in his early stages of practice, were not enlightened yogis looking for enlightenment. They were some hyper-ascetic, austere yogis practicing unbelievable forms of tapas and who had the target to master the tattvas, to, to master the elements of the universe. Which is, of course, interesting, but Buddha thought it was not worth it he was looking for something else in his quest. So here, Krishna himself says the yogi is thought to be superior to the ascetics. The ascetics are those who just practice asceticism, asceticism, for the sake of asceticism, for the sake of some power, that I'm virtuous and I'm doing asceticism, asceticism. The yogi is superior to those. That's a slap in the face. Because in those days there were many, and even today 
There are people in India who do all sorts of tapases and asceticism. And uh, at least if they would have read this shloka and understood it properly. Because Krishna says a yogi, he doesn't say an accomplished yogi. He simply says the, the yogi in general is thought to be superior to ascetics and even superior to men of knowledge. Those are the jnanis. And Swami Shivananda says those jnanis who have obtained their knowledge through the study of scriptures, like theologians, pundits, learned people, scholars. The yogi is superior to those who know because the yogi sees it, does it. He is not just a knower. So the yogi, Krishna himself says, the yogi is superior to the ascetics. It is superior to the man of knowledge. He is also superior to man of action. Here, Krishna says, who is a man of action? Mother Teresa, Mahatma Gandhi. Krishna actually says a yogi is superior to Mahatma Gandhi, like Swami Shivananda is superior to Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi is still a yogi, but he limits himself only to karma yoga. And that goes slowly, and only in the end of his life did Mahatma Gandhi reach samadhi, by dying the death of a martyr. Krishna says you can do better than Mahatma Gandhi. You can do karma yoga like Swami Shivananda did or like Buddha did, but on top of that you can do spiritual practice. You can do yoga. And Krishna, therefore, who speaks with the authority of God, of the divinity, says the yogi is superior to the tapasvins, to the ascetics, the yogi is superior to the pandits and the jnanins, the people who know. And the yogi is even superior to the selfless service, to the seva people, to the karma yogis. Because the yoga gives him a cutting edge. The yoga gives him this realization of the higher things. And he says he is also superior to men of action. Therefore, be thou a yogi, O Arjuna. Like he says, I can't wish anything better for you. If you are a yogi, you are against the ta you are above the tapas, you are above the jnana, you are above the scholarship and the learning, you are even above selfless service. That is the beauty of yoga. This you can see the true dimension of yoga. Krishna simply says, yoga is the best thing I can think of. And in the final strophe, number 47, which concludes our chapter and our excursion into this text for the time being, Krishna concludes by saying, and among all the yogis, among the yogis, like the yogis are a special caste in the eyes of Krishna. They are the best of people, even better than ascetics, even better than jnanins, pandits, and all that. And among all the yogis, among this caste, he who full of faith and with his inner self merged in me, worships me, he is deemed by me to be the most devout. 
Among the yogis, there can be yogis which are not bent on this proclamation or on this preaching the highest consciousness. Krishna says, it's a very strong statement which alludes to the state of Bhava Samadhi. Until you reach the state of Bhava Samadhi, the goal of many spiritual practitioners is Brahman, the Buddha nature or the void, which is a spiritual nature which is impersonal, transpersonal. And people say, I want to go beyond all the forms and things, and that reach to that thing which is everything and nothing, that void and so on. But this means that you don't see any personality of God. The Shaivas of Kashmir, for example, they had a complete spirituality. They speak about the Shiva consciousness as being the void, Purusha, and then they say, what about Shakti? You have to include the manifested, the immanent part of God, which is the universe, and therefore God necessarily must also have a face. If you want to go to God without face, name, then you just got half of God. Because there is also a God which is inferior, but very meaningful, and that is God in the manifestation, the manifested aspect of God, which means for you, the complete vision is to understand God as beyond and below as well. The divine consciousness must have a personality. Why? Because look at yourself. You are immortal spirit, transcendent, Atman and Purusha, and yet you have a personality as well. You cannot exist in this world without this interface, which is your ego, your lower personality. Therefore, God must not be kept there, must be brought here. And to bring God here, you must give it a personality. That's why the complete image of God is like a coin with two faces, like Janus in the Greek mythology. It has a face above, which is transcendent, formless, nameless, and it has a form down here, which looks to us, which has a form and a name. And for the Kashmirians, that form was called Shiva. When they wanted to see God, they wanted to see Shiva. Some people say, couldn't have they called it Allah? Yes, they could. They couldn't they have called him God the Father? Yes, they could. Couldn't they have called him Jehovah? Yes, they could have done all those and a million others. They chose Shiva because that was the cradle, the cultural cradle in which their spirituality was born. They could not choose a North American terminology because none of them had ever traveled to North America in the 10th century. And therefore they didn't have a clue and their minds did not contain any word or manifested thing, samskara idea, which was coming from other spiritual environments which might have existed somewhere on the planet Earth at the same time. Therefore, here Krishna simply says, out of all the yogis, there are some who aim for the void. And they simply say, no, I'm not interested in Krishna or Shiva, or I just want to surpass all forms. They are good. 
But there are some yogis who are even better. Those people have surpassed their fear to put a face, a name on God. They have gone over the top and now they are coming on the other slope of the hill and they say, after all, as long as you are in the manifestation, you can give a name and a face to God and relate to it as person to person. I'm a person, you are a person. I'm void, you are void. Both coexist. Thus, Krishna basically says the yogis that have reached this bhava samadhi mentality and who accept the spirituality which includes form and no form, this is the most complete form of spirituality and these are the ones that have reached full accomplishment and he says he is the supreme to me. Among all yogis, he who full of faith and with his inner self merged in me worships me, which means Krishna, and that means he sees the personal aspect of God as well. He is not afraid to do a little bit of bhakti, to do a little bit. He has a complete vision. That one, he is deemed by me to be the most fully united, the most fully realized, the most devout. This is the acme of yoga. The acme of yoga because there are spiritualists, you can see that in Vedanta, you can see that in Buddhism, especially in the Theravada Buddhism, there are people who constantly preach in classical yoga of Patanjali, just to mention a yoga, there are people who believe that you should reach Brahman, the formless, the nameless. But the Kashmiri Shaivas say, no, 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 by far not that. You have to reach the formless and then you have to regain the one with form, which you dropped on the way because you said, I don't need form and name, I want the formless. You got the formless, now get back and re-adopt the form, the one with form, because the one with form was not stupid to start with. It was useful. Maybe you discarded it because it was in your way. But once you have reached beyond, you can see that it had a usefulness. That is why... Krishna here shows his supreme non-dualistic nature because he basically preaches not nirvikalpa samadhi, he preaches bhava samadhi. And therefore Krishna says there are yogis, spiritualists, Vedantins, Buddhists, Patanjali yogis who preach Purusha is the goal. And he says, I beg to disagree. I am the goal. And therefore there is a dimension after Purusha, which is regaining the Prakriti, regaining the manifestation, re-embracing the manifestation from the level of an enlightened being. That is why Krishna here expresses it very beautifully. There are spiritualists and spiritualities that preach the void, and there are spiritualities which go beyond the void, and for some people that is incomprehensible. Like what can there be beyond the void? It's not beyond. It's back from the void, technically speaking. Enough of that. This concludes the chapter number six. We had the beautiful grace of dwelling into the great wisdom of Krishna, which is of divine origin. We are doing anyway a little meditation after the teachings. 
Today we are going to do a bit of a longer meditation. I will stay with you in meditation. It is a meditation on Sahasrara and on Ajna Chakra. It is a meditation on what we call in Tantra the Shiva consciousness, which means exactly the higher consciousness. That is because tonight we have the Shivaratri, it is the new moon night, and traditionally we have a Shiva meditation, a meditation on the masculine aspect, always in this evening. It so happened that today we celebrate both of them. We celebrate both, we do the satsang, and at the same time we do a bit of meditation. Please let us now prepare for a bit of meditation, which would fit very well as a coronation of the Krishna teachings of the Bhagavad Gita. 